From the Well is a conversation series that looks into the minds and souls of today's global leaders. This is the accompanying podcast to the videos on ChinaCurrent.com. In episode one, I sat down in Hong Kong with Dr. Margaret Chan, Director General Emeritus of the World Health Organization. Today, we bring you to Boston and Dr. Michelle Williams, an epidemiologist, public health scientist, and dean of the T. H. Chan School of Public Health at Harvard University. Today is an exciting time to be serving on the front lines in a pandemic that continues to cost lives and in a humanity where innovations are transforming our opportunities. Dr. Williams was born in Kingston, Jamaica, to parents with just a few years of formal education between them. But in less than a generation, they rewrote their family story. I'm your host, James Chow, and this is my guest, Michelle Williams. Professor Michelle Williams, it is a joy to be able to speak with you today, and of course, a complete privilege. But before we start, what do I call you, Dean Williams, Professor Williams, Doctor Williams? What would it be? Hi, James. You can call me Michelle, please. Thank you, Michelle. You live in Boston, Massachusetts. What's life like for you there now? I am privileged that I have a job that allows me to. Um, work remotely and continue to be engaged in training the next generation of public health leaders in the time of an epic public health crisis. We've had a lot of really tough losses. You know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. You know, this was a woman who, you know, even during her time at Harvard, was discriminated against because of her gender, and uh, we lost her, and we lost so many. You know, major civil rights. People. You're not only training the next public health leaders, but you're getting them ready to lead for that next pandemic. Will they be ready in this increasingly complex international landscape? In the last six months, we've had a hundred and seventy-seven percent increase in the applications to our masters in public health and epidemiology program. That's remarkable. These represent young people who are running towards the opportunity to serve, to learn the skills, to engage in helping to protect, promote, and preserve population health. So I don't even see my my job as work as much as I see it as an incredible opportunity to steward the next generation. Of public health leaders. This may be an obvious question: Why are we seeing such an exponential increase? Is it the pandemic alone, or is it because our young people are looking at the social and economic fallout from this pandemic as a call to civic duty? You know, James, I think your question is a really brilliant one, and I would say it's the latter. I think young people are seeing that、um, public health. Is at the very root of building a resilient, thriving, innovative, sustainable society, and I think they are beginning to see and appreciate that public health represents that umbrella that embodies all of the disciplines that would support economic growth and resilience, as well as social equity. And health resilience needed to undergird continued growth、uh, and development. So I think what we're seeing are young people coming into public health, recognizing 
that by bringing their own disciplinary training that they have and adding to that the knowledge, practices and approaches for building resilience into our systems, be it healthcare, economic development, global health security agenda, workforce development, all of these things require attention to health and wellness as the front door for continued growth and sustainability. As we go forward in this conversation, can I take you back to your early years, your childhood and your family? Where were you born and what were some of the formative experiences that led to your career in epidemiology and what you do today? I am an immigrant to the United States. I was born in Kingston, Jamaica. I am the oldest of three Jamaican-born children and my youngest, my baby brother, um, was American-born. My parents, between them, have less than nine years of formal education. My father apprenticed as a tailor and worked in Guantanamo Bay, which is where he was mentored and learned how to apply to become an immigrant to the United States. And he proudly worked in the garment district in New York City while earning the money to then bring the rest of his young family to the United States. I am a product of New York City public schools where I benefited greatly from incredible teachers. And I had one teacher who insisted that I apply to an Ivy League school and I went to Princeton University, a beautiful, wonderful liberal arts school that I credit for opening up my passion for learning and open my passion for social justice. And so my journey as an immigrant kid to the United States is built on the open door of education, liberal arts education that prepared me to add deep disciplinary knowledge and then address the things that I care about. And that is bringing forward the skills to allow for human thriving. And I hope all of the people who invested in my learning um, are feeling as though I'm paying it forward. There are people in Jamaica listening to this and realizing that they've given America not one, but two Jamaican-American women who are shaping the fabric of the world, you of course, and the other being Kamala Harris. Jamaica has this great tie to the Chinese culture because there are so many Chinese people in Jamaica. They're married into the culture. My mother's godson is Jamaican as well. I wanna add one thing. Um, I have family members who are Chinese. My paternal grandmother, Her third husband was Chinese. And so I have Chinese cousins, Chinese Jamaican cousins. And I'm really proud of the multicultural um, family that we have. And, you know, it's more common than it is unique. And I'm really proud of that. We're proud to have you as well. (laughs) Thank you. When we look at China, you have another tie to it being your more recent role as a key advisor to the Tsinghua Vanki School of Public Health. And in so doing, you're helping to provide opportunities for students studying over there. What skills do they need in a shifting world of competing priorities? And are those any different in China as they would be in America in this 21st century? I celebrated when I got the, the, um, the letter from, from Dean Margaret Chan telling me that she was going to become the inaugural Dean of the Tsinghua Vanki School of Public Health. 
So we celebrate um, having a sister school of public health at Xinhua. The major skills that I'm going to list are gonna be a bit of a surprise to you. They're not gonna be technical skills, they're gonna be basic skills. First and foremost, it comes down to the basics of listening, analytic thinking, and effective communicating. And I say that because that's what will add value to the technical education, the tools and the creativity that we all bring as specialists in our fields. Are we listening to the communities we want to serve? Are we analyzing the information that we're getting, some of which we may not have expected when we went into a community to help them? And then are we communicating back to that community that we have heard them, that we understand the challenges that they face, and that we can explain why and how a co-developed set of solutions will address the problems. That said, there are around 100 schools of public health in mainland China today. Do we actually need another school? Does it add any value? So I'm going to say the answer is there's not enough schools of public health. And here's why. I believe that what we should be doing is teaching the principles, practices, and approaches of public health all the way from kindergarten to throughout primary school. And you may have heard me, James, say that I believe that people who are leaders, elected leaders, and people who are running for-profit and philanthropic organizations all should avail themselves of continuing education in public health. If we all collectively worked through change management with that in mind, we would have a much more robust, resilient, thriving, and healthy environment. I've heard you put it in these words that public health is the insurance plan for society. And Dr. Chan says something similar. She calls it the social contract. From kindergarten onwards, would you go so far as to say that public health, because in America you have a four-year undergraduate degree, would you go so far as to say that public health should be the one-year foundation course before you go off and thrive in whatever field of academic excellence you choose to? I think what you're suggesting, James, is brilliant because that one year could be a year of service in the field. I directed for 25 years a service learning program. It brings joy to take someone who's thriving in one ecosystem and challenge them to equally thrive and grow in a completely foreign system. Confidence is built. It's there where lasting relationships built. It's where differences go away. And so imagine taking an Ethiopian third-year college student and asking them to go and do service learning in North Vietnam. We'll be back to hear more of Michelle Williams' story right after this. As I'm sitting listening to you, I'm so excited. But what excites Michelle Williams? I am a kid who, you know, um, never left school. Um, I found way to make school be my avocation and vocation. And so I will say what excites me every day is the opportunity to learn. Mm. But I also, you know, in reflecting on your question, James, I want to say, think about where we were 13 or 14 months ago um, in the middle of a pandemic 
waiting to identify solutions to get us all out of this. And we have these jabs, we have these tools that came about in a remarkable speed. And it's based on a platform of mRNA that um, some people think it's only 12 months that we have these jabs created. But truth be told, it's 20 years of investment in research and development in basic science. And what this reminds me of is just how important it is for us to continue as a society to finance, to support, to encourage and enable curiosity-driven research. This curiosity-driven research can be leveraged in ways that will help us solve problems we never anticipate. So I wanna say in response to your question that I'm excited by education. I'm excited by our strategic investment in building new knowledge by investing in basic research. And I sincerely hope that we continue to do this because we can't always anticipate what the next challenges will be. We're clearly in a moment of public health where there is an acute focus, a light that's lasered onto it. What can we do to really make use of this moment? Public health has been um, undervalued. Public health has been pushed aside. Public health has not been understood. And, and I don't think it's still completely understood. But what we have to do, I think, is use this moment to say, it can't just be a moment, it has to be a movement. So by that, I mean, we have to have better pathogen surveillance systems, for example, where we're using novel emerging techniques and we're using them in ways that accelerate and close gaps in the data gaps that we have so that we can more quickly and nimbly identify threats to population health. And then we have to be sure that we have an a workforce that is well positioned, that is continually being uh, supported and enabled to meet new challenges as they come along. Yeah, about a year ago, you gave the convocation address for your students. And at that time, you paid tribute to the 2 million people infected and the 150,000 people dead. One year later, those numbers have shifted markedly. And as your next class prepares to graduate, I wonder what should we anticipate next in this pandemic? And how would you, as a person with skill, but also a person of compassion, what would you tell us to do in order to prepare ourselves? I am preparing my convocation speech right now. And I will tell you the message will be essentially the same that we are um, leaders, that we bring our skills, whether it's in virology or epidemiology or computer science, and that as we all graduate and move forward, what we are recognizing is we are entering a life of continuing service and continuing education, and that we should never miss the opportunity to continue to advocate for being prepared and for being responsive. 
If you're just joining us, I'm James Chow in conversation with Michelle Williams of the Harvard Chan School of Public Health. Science and public health can help treat and manage disease, but in a pandemic where we continue to see people of colour pain with their own lives, is there anything left in the innovation toolbox to not only treat, but to heal those wounds around race? You use the word treat, James, which is important because um, where there is illness, where there is a need, treatment has to be brought forward. But I'm going to say that something really remarkable is happening in this moment. People in global governance are recognizing what we in public health had understood before, that discrimination and racism are public health problems. If we own these as public health problems, then we can apply the public health approach and principles of prevention to bringing about sustainable solutions. Treating only addresses the problem once it's matured into something that's clinically palpable. But prevention is a wiser, more economically viable, more sustainable approach to addressing racism and discrimination. That we have seen the unequal infection rates, hospitalization rates and death rates among Black Americans, Latinx Americans and indigenous people. Today, people like you working in and for public health are the social activists of the 21st century. What do you think leaders in the struggle for civil rights like Martin Luther King Jr., John F. Kennedy, Rosa Parks, what do you think our elders would advise us in the direction of? You, you bring forward um, really important luminaries who understood that um, injustice um, anywhere is an injustice to all of us because it really does weaken the social fabric. When you bring people like Rosa Parks to mind, I have to think about James Baldwin as well. So James Baldwin is famously known to say, ignorance allied with power is the most ferocious enemy justice can have. Why I love education and I love the opportunity of our conversation is conversations like these allow us to address the issue of ignorance. We all collectively have that power to change and that change can bring about health and wellness for all. Dean Michelle Williams, we're not only on it but we're blessed to have had this time with you today. Thank you. Thank you so much, James. It's an honor to talk with you. From the Well is your look into the minds and souls of today's global leaders. Brought to you by the China Current and Tsinghua Vanki School of Public Health. You can watch this interview on video at thechinacurrent.com and your preferred social media. I'm James Chow. It's been a privilege sharing this time with you.